I want to begin by tonight by telling y'all the story of Babette's Feast. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the story, it was a novel written by Isaac Denison, and it was made into a movie in uh, the late 80s. And it tells the story of a poor fishing village in Denmark in the 19th century. Now, if you can imagine this, this town with me, it was a town of muddy streets and thatched-roofed hovels. Um, in this bleak setting, there's this white-bearded pastor who leads a group of worshipers in a small Lutheran community. Now, this sect of Lutherans renounced the finer things of this world. They wore all black. Their diet consisted of boiled cod and this gruel that they made from boiling bread and water. Um, on Sundays, the group met together and sang songs about Jerusalem, their heavenly home. And they had their hearts fixed together on the new Jerusalem. And they saw this world, this life, just as something to tolerate until they got there. And this old pastor who was a widower, he had two teenage daughters, uh, Martine and Philippa, who were, were told are stunningly beautiful. And villagers would attend church just to feast their eyes on these two, whose radiance could not be suppressed despite their best efforts. And despite their, their beauty and the advances of eligible bachelors, Martine and Philippa remained single. They remained devoted to their father and to their religious sect. So we're told that 15 years pass, the father dies, and not much has changed in the village. And these two sisters, who are now middle-aged spinsters, um, are attempting to carry out the mission of their deceased father. But without any stern leadership, this sect begins to splinter. Um, brothers become divided over a business deal gone bad. Rumors spread about a 30-year sexual <laughs> affair involving two members. It's a pair of old ladies who don't speak to each other for a decade. And although they continue to meet week after week and sing these hymns together week after week, only a handful bother to attend, and their music has lost all joy. And despite all of these problems, the pastor's two daughters remain faithful, um, organizing services, boiling food for toothless uh, elderly so that they can eat in the village. And one night, a night that was too rainy for anyone to go out into the muddy streets, the sisters hear a heavy thump at the door. And when they open it, a woman collapses across the threshold into their, room, into their home. And when they revive her, they learn that she speaks no Danish. And then she hands them a letter. In this letter, they learn that her name is Babette, that she's lost her husband and her son in the French Revolution. Her life was in danger, so she had to flee, and she found passage on a ship in hopes that this village might show her mercy. And the letter tells them that Babette can cook. So the sisters have no money to pay Babette, and they feel rather uncomfortable employing a maid. Um, and of course they distrust her cooking because um, they think that all the, fresh, all the French cook are horses and frogs. So, um, but through gestures and pleading, Babette softens their hearts. She'll do any, any chores for them in exchange for room and board. And so for the next 12 years, Babette works for, his, works for the sisters. She never once questions the assignments. She feeds the poor. She takes over the chores. She helps at the Sunday services. And everyone in the town agrees that Babette brings new life to the community. And during these 12 years, Babette never refers to her past life in France. Until one day, after 12 years, she receives her first letter. Babette reads it and announces matter-of-factly that a wonderful thing has happened to her. See, each year a friend of hers in Paris had re-entered her name in the lottery, and this year she had won, and she won 10,000 francs. And so as it happened, Babette's lottery coincided with the very time that the sisters were planning to celebrate the, the anniversary of their father's birth, the 100th anniversary of their father's birth. 
So Babette comes to them with this request. She says, in 12 years I've asked nothing of you, but now I have a request. I would like to prepare the meal for the anniversary dinner, and I would like to cook you a real French dinner. And when the money arrives from France, Babette goes away briefly to make arrangements for the dinner. And over the next few weeks after her return, the residents of the small fishing town are treated to one amazing sight after another as boats dock and unload provisions for Babette's kitchen. We're told that workmen push wheelbarrows with crates of small birds. There are cases of champagne and wine that soon follow. The entire head of a cow comes in. Fresh vegetables, truffles, pheasants, a ham, strange sea creatures, a huge tortoise, still alive. All these things end up in her kitchen. Now Martine and Philippa are alarmed at all of this. They meet with their little sect. It's only 11 of them left. And they agree that they will withhold comment during the meal. They make this pact to say nothing to Babette. For they say that tongues were meant for praise and thanksgiving, not for indulging exotic tastes. And so on the night of the feast, December 15th, it snows. And um, the snow covers the dull village in this bright blanket of white. And the sisters were pleased to learn that there's an unexpected guest at their dinner. It's a 90-year-old woman named Miss Lowenhelm, and she's escorted by her nephew, who's a cavalry officer who once courted Martine long ago. And now he's a general serving in the royal palace. And so Babette has somehow scrounged enough together, scrounged together enough china and crystal, and she set the dining room and, and just set the table splendidly. Um, and when the meal begins, all the, the people in the sect remember they're, they're packed and they keep silent. And only the general remarks of the food and drink. And when he sips his first glass of wine, he gasps. This is the finest wine I've ever tasted. And then the meal consists of turtle soup and caviar and quail stuffed with foie gras and truffles and escargot and salads and cheeses and tropical fruits and all accompanied by champagne and fine wine. And at the end of Babette's feast, the general is audibly delighted with the meal, while the other guests, silenced by their pact, are without expression or comment. Although no one else speaks of the food or drink, gradually the banquet works this magical effect on these rude and surly villagers. Their blood begins to warm, their tongues loosen, they begin to speak with joy of the old days when the pastor was alive. The brother who had cheated his other brother on the business deal finally confesses. The women who hadn't spoken to each other in over a decade find themselves in conversation. A woman burps at the table and the man next to her says without thinking, Hallelujah! Um, the general, though, could speak of nothing but the meal. And when the kitchen boy brings out the main course, this, the coup de gras, the quail stuffed with foie gras and truffles, the general eats it and he exclaims that he has only seen and tasted this dish in one place, the famous Café Anglais in Paris, the restaurant once owned and renowned for its female chef. Heady with wine, his senses filled, unable to contain himself, the general rose to make a speech. And he says, Mercy and truth, my friends, have met together. Righteousness and peace shall kiss one another. And then the general has to pause. And um, the author writes that, For he was in the habit of forming his speeches with care, conscious of his purpose. But here, in the midst of the pastor's simple congregation, it was as if the whole figure of General Lowenhelm, his chest covered in medals, were but a mouthpiece for the message which meant to be brought forth. And the message he gives is a message of God's grace. 
And although the people of that sect do not fully comprehend his speech, Denison writes that the vain illusions of this earth had dissolved before their eyes like smoke, and they had seen the universe as it really was. The little dinner party breaks up, and they go outside into a town blanketed with this glistening snow under a sky bright with stars. Now this story is beloved. Um, For those of you who know it, I'm sure you love it. And it's so well loved because it's this parable of food, um, this parable of grace, this parable of hunger and then satisfaction. And when the movie came out in 1987, theaters and restaurants around the country were in a frenzy. They were showing the film on their screens. They were serving the meal at their tables. And this movie had great power because it hinted at this deep reality that maybe, just perhaps, food is more than just food. Maybe our hunger goes deeper than we think. Now this semester at RUF, we are reading the Gospel of John together, and we're looking at Jesus, and we're seeing how it is that God has provided him as the answer to some of our fundamental questions um, as humans. Um, Tim Keller writes that Jesus himself is the main argument for why we should believe Christianity. And tonight what we're going to do together is we're going to look at Jesus and our hunger. Um, There's a handful of quotes on your bulletin if you want to flip it over. Um, The first is from Feuerbach. Did I say that right? Ludwig Feuerbach, anybody? 19th century German philosopher, anthropologist, who wrote, Man is what he eats. Um, the next one is from Alexander Schmemann, who is a, an Orthodox Greek priest, Greek Orthodox priest, and he says, Man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desire is finally a desire for him. As humans, we have this persistent hunger. And this hunger, as you know, leads us to find food. Right? We're looking to be satisfied in our hunger. So our outline for tonight, if you're taking notes, um, we're going to be talking about our persistent hunger, um, we're going to talk about an abiding meal, and then a few thoughts of application at the end. So first, a persistent hunger. So to give us a little context of where we are, as Margaret read, notice how we sort of jumped around in John 6. John 6 is really long, and so I wanted us to be able to zoom in on some of these passages. But John, John 6 tells the story of Jesus... Um, going up a hillside, being followed by this large crowd of people who are following him because they see him heal sick people. And he sits down with his disciples and he sees this large crowd coming towards them. And so he asks his disciple Philip, he says, where are we going to get food for all of these people? Philip doesn't have an answer. Andrew comes up to him, one of his other disciples, and said, I found this little boy who's got five loaves and two fish. And a little boy with his lunch. And so Jesus takes these loaves and takes these fish and he He thanks God for them and then distributes them amongst the people. And we're told in the story that there are 5,000 men who are fed, which means that there are 5,000 families um, which are fed sitting down on the grass, and that there's enough food to fill 12 basketfuls of leftovers, presuming that the disciples then got to eat their fill as well. And And the people were so excited to be fed by Jesus, um, they were told that they want to crown Jesus as their king. And Jesus sees that they want to make him their king, so he ducks out. He runs and hides. Um, And one of the simple truths of this story is that Jesus feeds hungry people. As I was thinking about my hunger this week, I was thinking, um, I was brought back to some of my my richest memories. Um, The sounds and smells of dinner cooking as a child. The lid rattling on the stove as pasta boils. 
the wa- that waft of steam that hits you when you open the oven, and then the meal, right? Flavors and smells, um, the feeling of a full belly. Right? There's something magical about being fed. There's something deeply human about being fed. That's because there's something deeply human about being hungry. And the people in our story are, are hungry. Um, in verse 25, we see that those whom Jesus fed follow him. They're trying to find him because he miraculously fed 5,000 families the day before. And then in verses 26 through 34, they have this conversation about hunger. And Jesus says to them, you're seeking me because I fed you. And then he turns their attention towards a different type of food. Look at verse 27 with me. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. What he's saying to them is that you've spent the past days looking for me. You've been trying to find me to fill your stomachs. And there's another food, a food that won't go bad, and eating it will give you eternal life. Now, when you start talking about bread with a bunch of Jews in the first century, immediately their minds go to Moses. The reason for this is the Jews um, told their story to themselves over and over again. And the story of of Israel being rescued from slavery in Egypt. That um, Israel was enslaved in Egypt and the people cried out and God heard their cry and sent Moses to them to rescue them out of slavery. Brings them into the wilderness. And in the wilderness they get hangry. Right? They don't have food. They're complaining, thinking, like, has God brought us out here to suffer and die and not eat? And so God provides for them by providing manna in the wilderness, where he causes this, this bread-like substance to rain from heaven, and that they're to collect it each morning and eat it. Um, but the next day it will go bad. So not to store it, but just to eat it, to have their daily bread. And in doing this, teaching his, God teaching his people to trust him, to trust him for his daily provision, to trust him with their hunger. That our hunger is actually to be aimed towards God. And the Bible actually tells us our story, tells us the story of our hunger. We're told that in the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit makes man in his image, and he creates him hungry. And the whole world, the whole world is created as his food. Second only to the command to be fruitful and multiply, God instructs man to eat of the earth. In Genesis 1, 29, um, God says this. He says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Alexander Schmemann, who I read from earlier, this Greek Orthodox priest, he puts it this way. He says, Man must eat in order to live. He must take the world into his body and transform it into himself. Man is a hungry being, but he's hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. And desire, all desire, is finally and ultimately a desire for Him. And it's not accidental that the biblical story of the fall, what went wrong with the world, is centered on food. We're told that God gave Adam and Eve everything to eat, except for this one tree, and tells them not to eat of it. And man eats this forbidden fruit. And it was unlike every other fruit in the garden, because it was not offered as a gift to man, not given, not blessed by God. It was food whose eating was condemned, because it led not to communion with God, but away from communion with God, towards um, a fullness, a promise of fullness apart from our Creator. And this is a promise that's never been kept. And since that day in the garden, we, children of Adam, humans, we look and we taste and we take, hoping for our hunger to be satisfied. 
Right? We look everywhere and anywhere to see if things are good for food. And we eat. Right? We consume, hoping to be satisfied. But the next morning, we always wake up hungry. And another way of saying this is that all of us have eating disorders. All of us are on the eating disorder spectrum. We don't eat enough, or we eat too much. We see food as our God, or we, do, we reduce food to mere fuel. We deify food, or we demonize it. And not just that, but our, our appetites are distorted. Our taste buds are broken. We eat things. We consume things, not just food, that aren't any good for us. And all of this is out of a longing to be full. And all of this is because we're hungry. We have this deep and persistent hunger that this world cannot satisfy. And here Jesus is saying that the one who made us has food for us that will satisfy. And into our persistent hunger, God provides for us an abiding meal. Jesus tells the crowds of a meal that, um, that will give life to the world. In response to the crowds who tell Jesus, Sir, give us this bread always. Um, Jesus continues and he says to them that unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. All right, this is crazy, right? This is like when Margaret was reading, I don't know if y'all got uncomfortable, I got a little uncomfortable. All right, this is, this is, sounds like cannibalism. This is, this is weird. Um, this would have been weird to Jesus's original audience too. But listen to Jesus here. He's, he's using this language for a reason. He says it twice. He says, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you will have no life in you. Now, why would Jesus say this? Right? Why would he bring our imaginations to images of cannibalism? Right? There's lots of ways that Jesus could talk about hunger and satisfaction, but why this? Well, in John's gospel, um, the apostle John tells us, the readers, tells us the readers exactly why he wrote it. This is in John 20, verses 30 to 31. He writes this. He says, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And in this passage, Jesus himself is talking about belief, right? Look at verse 47. Look at this with me. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And so by using this language, Jesus isn't making himself less accessible to us. But rather, he's, just, he's coming at faith from a different angle. Now, I think a lot of us, for a lot of us, the idea of having faith in Jesus is hard. This is a hard idea for us to wrap our heads around. I mean, what does it mean to believe? What is it, um, how do I know if I believe? What does it look like to exercise Christian faith? Is this merely intellectual assent? Um, Does my heart have to be engaged in what I profess to be true? And Jesus' words here are written as a help to those of us who need help. Um, So listen to him. He says this, he says, Take me into yourself. The same way that you eat a meal, the same way you drink wine, do this with me. Consume me, because I am the true bread of heaven. I am the gift of God for the world. Life is found in taking me into yourself. This is what he says in verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus is saying that he alone is the food that will satisfy your deepest hunger. The only way for you to have the satisfaction that you long for, the fullness that you were made for, for, is to eat Jesus' flesh and to drink his blood. Now John's gospel 
um, was written sometime between A.D. 70 and A.D. 100. And we know that the church had been practicing the Lord's Supper each Sabbath, each Sunday, as they gathered together in worship, at least um, since A.D. 40. So for at least 30 years, Jesus' church gathered together and took bread and broke it, and took wine and poured it out, and said these words together. This is from 1 Corinthians. Um, They said these words together. They said, on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he had broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And he said, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? For those of you who have had any time in church, you are familiar with this. These are the words that are used week after week before the church comes together to take the Lord's Supper. This meal, the supper, the Eucharist, communion, this is the central act of Christian worship. Christians have celebrated the Lord's Supper since the birth of the church. So if you are a Christian, this is what you do. You go to worship on Sunday, and you eat with God's people. And you take the bread, and you take the cup, and you chew, and you swallow, and Jesus feeds you. He actually feeds you real spiritual nourishment. Because in this meal, the church proclaims the death of Christ. That for our hunger to be satisfied, the one who made us, the one who has given the world to us to be our kitchen, this one, God the great chef, had to enter into the world and become the meal. The cook had to become the cuisine. The Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. And this story that we have in John 6 ends with many people turning back and no longer following Jesus because these words are too hard. And John leaves us with this stark contrast. The disciples who stay and the disciples who go. Now I know that many of you are all over the map in regards of what you believe and how you relate to the Christian faith. Um, But wherever you are in your understanding of faith and of Christianity, I want you to hear Jesus clearly here. He's saying that the satisfaction that you long for, the fullness that you seek through consuming, whether it be food or drink or people or products, your hunger, your desire, wherever it leads you, other than to Jesus Christ himself, he's saying that there is no abiding life there. You will not find life there. That ultimately seeking life away from Jesus leads to death. And even if you're looking to God just for the good gifts that he gives you, your life will be a rat race of hunger. Never feeling satisfied, you will never have enough to really feel full. But Jesus is saying is if you look to God to satisfy you in himself, if you take Jesus into yourself, this Jesus who was crucified for you, was buried for you, was raised from the dead for you, ascended into heaven for you, will come back for you. If you take this Jesus into yourself, You will have life, abiding life, life that can never be taken away from you. So to go back to Babette's feast, Babette's feast ends with two scenes. Outside, after the supper, the old people join hands around this fountain in the village and they sing their old songs together with joy. And it's a communion scene. Um, Babette's feast has opened their hearts and grace has broken in. 
And they felt, as Denizen writes, they felt as if they had indeed had their sins washed white as wool, and in this regained their innocence, running playfully like little lambs. And then the final scene of this story takes place inside, in the kitchen, in the wreck of a kitchen, piled high with unwashed dishes, greasy pots, shells, gristly bones, broken crates, vegetable trimmings, and, open, and empty bottles. And Babette sits amidst this mess, looking as beat down as she did when she arrived 12 years prior. And suddenly, the sisters realize that no one had spoken to her since the dinner. And so they come to her, and Martine says tentatively, it was quite a nice dinner, Babette. And Babette seems far away. After a time, she says to them, I was once cook at the, chef, at the Café Anglais. And then Martine adds, oh, we will all remember this evening when you go back to Paris, Babette. As if not hearing her. And then Babette tells him she will not be going back to Paris. That all her friends and relatives there have been killed or imprisoned. And of course, it would be expensive to go back to Paris. But what about the 10,000 francs, the sisters ask. And then Babette drops the bombshell. That she spent her winnings every last franc of the 10,000 she won on the feast that they just devoured. Don't be shocked, she tells them. That's what a proper dinner for 12 costs at the Café Anglais. Friends, the fullness that we long for comes at great cost to the cook. Your infinite hunger can only be satisfied in a meal of infinite value. This is what Jesus is inviting you to, to eat, to drink, to taste, and to see the most expensive meal that the world has ever known. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that